0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mythic Mission with Professor Michael Jahoski. I am pleased to announce that this is Mythic Mission's 10th episode, and today joining me to talk about why Narnia is more real than we might think is Dr. Brian M. Williams, who is the author of the new book, C.S. Lewis, Pre-Evangelism for a Post-Christian World, Why Narnia Might Be More Real Than We Think. So I am pleased to have Dr. Williams on the show today. We had a wonderful conversation. It went over an hour, which as you know, uh, rarely happens here with the interviewees that I have on the show on Mythic Mission. I've done a few that are uh, just slightly over an hour, but uh, wow, this was worth um, the extra time. And I, I sure hope Dr. Williams didn't mind me keeping him a few extra minutes because what a book this is. I highly recommend this book by Dr. Williams for everybody uh, who listens to Mythic Mission, it does for Narnia what my book does for Middle Earth. Uh, I'm going to be releasing a podcast soon on um, uh, the same subject, but from the point of view of my book on why Middle Earth is more real than we think. Of course, if you've read my book, The Good News of the Return of the King, The Gospel of Middle Earth, you know that in the introduction, I talk about this and that it's the realism of the Lord of the Rings that really uh, enchants us. And today on the show, uh, Dr. Williams and I spoke uh, extensively about the imagination and the role that myth in general, uh, indirect communication, imaginative story plays in uh, enchanting uh, people and and also preparing their hearts and minds for uh, the gospel, and also giving them a concrete experience that only myth can give with the Son of God. Uh, And of course, doing all this in a post-Christian world where uh, you know, the uh, as Lewis once said, the, the pre-Christian pagans had more in common with modern Christians than than uh, you know modern uh, people do because uh, the world is post-Christian and uh, we've emptied the world of its transcendence and the, the sense of the the numinous and the uh, what Rudolf Otto uh, Otto talked about the mysterium tremendons and uh, fascinans, uh, the mystery. Uh, that uh, fascinates, and uh, the the tremendous mystery of the divine, the the, the sense of awe uh, and of, of the numinous, and and um, it's interesting. Lewis, you know, writes about how uh, Christians have more in common with pagans who who understood this at least, but the modern post-Christian does not, and it's uh, it's a really fascinating uh, comment by Lewis, and that comes up today, as well as so many other things uh, that I had just a. a, a such a great time talking with Dr. Williams. So I hope you enjoy the show. And um, without further ado, let me introduce our uh, special guest, and then I'll uh, let you dive right into the episode for today, Mythic Mission's uh, 10th episode. So it is with Dr. Brian M. Williams. And again, the book, uh, which the Amazon link will be in the uh, podcast episode description today, is C.S. Lewis, Pre-Evangelism for a Post-Christian World, Why Narnia Might Be More Real Than We Think, Dr. Brian M. Williams has taught courses in the history of ideas and philosophy as an adjunct professor at the college at Southeastern in Wake Forest, North Carolina. He is the author of Putting Together the Pieces, How to Make Sense of the Old Testament and the aforementioned uh, Lewis book. It is also published in the Journal of Inkling Studies, which is the top academic journal on the Oxford literary circle, The Inklings. He teaches the Bible weekly and frequently mentors men to think and live Christianly in all of life. Brian lives with his wife, Jennifer, and their two children, Pierce and Claire, in Wake Forest, North Carolina. I hope you enjoy the show. Again, don't forget to subscribe to my website and to the podcast. Thank you for your support, and God bless. Uh, as you know, just uh, always like to ask people how you came to faith, and you know, did Lewis play any role in it? And then we'll dive into your book. Yeah,
1: sure. Well, again, hey, thanks for having me, Michael. Grateful to to do this, yes, and thank thanks you. for your book, also. That you know, as I perused it, and I'm gonna devour it here pretty soon. <laughs> we uh, so like minded, and just mm. grateful for what you've done.
0: Thank you so much.
1: So yeah, my uh, my journey to Christ. I grew up in a Christian home, mm. so and and a good Christian home. Uh, we went to a church to where, you know, the preaching was was good enough to where you. You, you could understand the message uh we i heard the truth from a young age but it didn't it didn't take root i i never disagreed with the facts of christianity so mm. I, I never i i wasn't like lewis where he plowed through a season of real skepticism in terms mm. of the reality the, the facts of christianity that wasn't me mm. for me the facts always seemed uh, to be true I ran from God simply because I didn't want to live what I thought was a really stuffy kind of a, a life. For me, mm-hmm. Christianity, um, though I had the facts right about who Jesus was and what he'd come to do, as I thought about what Christianity meant to live it out, I was way off, yeah. and I thought it was this really stuffy, dry, uh, live a miserable, joyless uh, desert life. Yeah. And if you did that well enough, you know, at the end of it, heaven's waiting for you and it'll be worth it in the end. So that <laughs> was sort of, right. you know what I mean? So that was, that was, that was how I thought about it. Um, so I ran from God, not wanting him to put those shackles on me. Mm. Um, this, I, I think as early, I remember a conscious running from God, uh, probably in about the seventh to eighth grade, mm.
0: uh,
1: pretty young, and got involved in drugs, uh, alcohol, and then heavily uh, became a cocaine addict wow. uh, up until I was 20 years old. So oh my. my life was a, a real mess. But I will tell you, as I as I mentioned uh, in the book, there was something nagging that wouldn't that wouldn't go away. That took me all the way back to my second grade year in school, hmm. where I had a teacher named Mrs. Simpson, who she would go to the front of the classroom and she would sit down on her on her big tall chair i can picture it man like it was mm-hmm. yesterday mm-hmm. she would oh and this was a public school she would open up the line, the witch in the wardrobe and she would read Amazing. and i sat mm-hmm. there and man i was on the spectrum of adhd i was i was yeah. up there yeah so uh could not concentrate never sat still but when miss simpson would read i don't think i moved a muscle wow and i was enchanted to, to hear about this magical land of Narnia that these children could got to through a wardrobe in an in a old house of a professor and how they met uh, the lion Aslan and all that Aslan was and, and what he stood for. I didn't pick up on any of that, that the, the meaning behind it was lost on me when I was a child. Mm-hmm. But what got me was the enchantment, the sense of longing and joy that Lewis talks about that's right the stab got me mm-hmm. that happened several times throughout my life and I didn't I didn't ask the kind of questions I should have asked. I just knew that I had never tasted delight with that kind of potency ever before mm-hmm. and even you know as someone who went after drug addiction and you're chasing thrills in, in that kind of life a lot mm-hmm. of times it never came it never tasted like, the pure taste of, of the delight that Narnia gave. You know what I mean?
0: Sure, I certainly do.
1: So that uh, that was always there. I really crashed and burned at 20 years of age. Everything in my life had crumbled, didn't know where to turn, and I went back home. I'd, I'd moved out and li- was living with some friends. I'd mm. gone back home and basically told my parents I need help. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do, and they asked me to go speak with a pastor at a local church, and I sat down in this guy's office, and he shared with me the story. Uh, he shared with me the gospel, but he did it in such a way that he started with just the story of the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he starts off into this story, and he doesn't – I didn't – I don't remember ever hearing that, honestly, but he told me it. And then he asked me, he said, do you know who told that story? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, Jesus told that story. He said, do you know why he told it? And he, he helped me look at it from the perspective of the, the son who would run off and, and messed his life up. Yeah. And he said, that father, like our heavenly father, he would run after you if you would run towards him. If you would turn around and come towards him, you would be, I think, amazed at how quickly he would welcome you and embrace you and forgive you and clean your life up. And uh, Christ died so that this could be possible for you. And so I became a Christian at age 20. And then uh, to tie it all together, I was sitting in church. This is in Memphis, Tennessee. And the pastor would quote C.S. Lewis every now and then. And I would think, why is he quoting this children's book author? And the quotes he was quoting didn't sound like things I had read that Lewis had said. And I remember thinking, this guy, this children's book author has an awful lot to say about Christianity. Yeah. And he yeah. has some good stuff to say. Yeah. So I went back, Michael, uh, and I read through the Chronicles of Narnia again after I'd become a Christian. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. I, it, it was such a moving experience. I can't tell you the number of times I would be reading, um, going through, and just break down into tears mm-hmm. because I'd looked back on my life, and I realized that, you know, to quote the one poet, the hound of heaven had been on my trail mm. for so long, and I didn't know it. These things that I was loving and longing for were pointing me like signposts to Christ mm-hmm. all Good. those years, and so um, – it, word did get out. I hated reading books when I was young. The last thing I'll say on this, then we can get into the book if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I hated reading books growing up. I was not a reader. Mm-hmm. I was a sports guy. All I ever wanted to do was play sports and do physical things. You mm-hmm. know, I was not a smart kid, not academic type at all. Wow. I still don't feel that way. Yeah. Um, just a normal <laughs> guy.
0: Right. Yeah,
1: just a normal guy. Um, and. But I checked out that book from my library, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, so many times. If they still had those old slips of paper where the librarian stamped it and you know wrote your li- – I, I have to hold the record for numbers of times of, of anyone to check that book out. No doubt. And yeah. my grandparents heard about that, and they bought me the set of books for Christmas one year when I was mm-hmm. young. And I've – just over my shoulder, there they are right there. That's the set yeah, of books.
0: I see them, yeah.
1: And um, so I Lewis has played such a huge part in my life. And when I was coming to the end of my dissertation, you know, my PhD work here, um, I should say, as I was coming through my PhD work, thinking about a dissertation and thinking about what do I want to write on? Mm -hmm. The question was nagging me is, how would I make sense of that phenomenon? How would I make sense of, of the world that we live in, where something like a fantasy story told by Lewis or Tolkien, in your case, mm-hmm. could do the things inside of us that they did. Exactly. Things that are so profoundly real and lead us to Christ. So that yeah. was the whole, the whole impetus of my doing this work was really birthed out of being so grateful that Lewis helped lead me to Christ in a sort of a roundabout mm-hmm.
0: way. I can relate to that. Uh, what an incredible story. Uh, I, I've not heard anything like it in, in quite some time. Uh, and so just a, a very arresting story. I had to stop and think. I had some questions I wanted to ask you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Uh, I think a lot of people will, will be blessed by your story. Um, you know, for, for me, I think the first thing that came to mind as I was listening to you, and this will kind of be a good segue into your book, is um, an essay that C.S. Lewis wrote, you know, this being an academic essay. Sometimes fairy stories say best what needs to be said, and I know you're familiar with it. Um, I, I, love, I love that essay. I love um, Uh, just the title itself really is exactly the content he's trying to communicate. And that's what you've tried to do in this book. You've tried to explain how, uh, how fairy story, how myth uh, enchants us, how that works in us. And that was the same journey I struggled through in writing my book is how do I explain to other people what Tolkien's writings have done to me? I had to first identify what was going on and then how do you narrate this to someone else? And uh, it's, it's, um, it's very complicated. It, it can be, but you've done a, a, a tremendous job of uh, making it approachable. I, I wouldn't say you simplified it because you keep it as Lewis presents it, but you really do a great job of explaining, especially the, the tricky parts about the imagination, the role of the imagination, which I know we'll get to. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you again for the book. It, it really um, does deliver on what you're trying to accomplish there, mm-hmm. so. Thank and, you. um, yeah, you're, you're welcome. And, and, you know, uh, as I shared with you before we started this morning, uh, for me, I, I can, uh, you know, my story is very different. Uh, and when you read the preface of my book, you'll see that, but, um, it was this sense of urgency and, and wanting real life to be as dramatic and important to have a role to play in the, in a fellowship. You know, I wanted that sense of belonging of what I was getting in middle earth and Tolkien, um, you know, I, I had no idea, as you said earlier, I had no idea the meaning of it all. I had no idea initially of the connection between the Christian worldview, which I had just recently at 16, 15, 16, uh, started to take on again. And then in the years to come, I finally understood what the story was doing to me. Uh, and what I love about your book, and I think our books both try to do this, is to try to explain that. Uh, Narnia and middle earth are real and, and trying to understand what that means and what that entails. Cause I know that's going to throw a lot of people for a loop. Um, and, and what I, if I understand you correctly, what you're trying to argue is that it's reality as it ought to be a re re-enchant, a re-enchanted reality. It's a reality as it will be from the Christian point of view. And, and that's at least how I understood it. Uh, and so I want to have people get a taste of your book so that they, uh, they, you know, if they're not convinced already go out and buy it and read it and read carefully and take notes because it's one of those books that's going to reward um, endless rereadings. So, um, you know, I know um, you have an introduction, you have a forward and introduction, but why don't you just take us through a little bit of what you're trying to do in the main chapter. So you've got chapter one, which is C.S. Lewis, the man, and then uh, we will go from there. Sure. Yeah.
1: So in chapter one, what I wanted to do um, I, I wanted to set a context for Lewis's life because I realized that there are many people who had probably read one or two of his Narnia books. Maybe they'd read Mere Christianity, uh, some The Problem of Pain, mm-hmm. Screwtape Letters, a few of these you know, more popular level books that they'd read. But sure. I thought it would be helpful to give a context for Lewis the man mm-hmm. to show uh, both how, how did he come to to Christ Himself, and what role did the imagination play in His coming to that? Because, as you know, in His autobiography, "Surprised by Joy," uh, the title gives it away. That's what the whole story is about. To the point to where He says at the beginning, He says, "To the to the degree that this is this concept of joy is not interesting, you know, to someone, that this book will be of no help. You know, it's <laughs> you might just want to put it down, exactly. something like that." Yep. But I wanted to show uh, the story of Lewis, um, but the, when you look at his autobiography, he, he cuts it off right after his conversion to Christ, and it ends there. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to tell that story, to, and I wanted to keep joy central, this, this l- sense of imaginative longing that gets stirred up for us by myths, by music. Even Wagner's music did it for Lewis, you know? mm-hmm. for some people by nature. We were talking before the program here about the mountains and how mm-hmm. they do that for us. You know, I'm I'm four hours from the mountains up the road here in North Carolina, and like I said, every time I go through them, it's there's the sense of awe, and it and it and it gets me every time. Mm-hmm. What is it about the world that, that it can do that to us, and especially the imaginative world mm-hmm. uh, of of story and myth? Yeah. So I wanted to tell how that worked in Lewis's life, bringing him to Christ, and then. There was a letter that I had read that, that just sold me on this whole thing. It was the letter to Sister Penelope. Mm-hmm. You know, Lewis had just written, uh, was it 1938 maybe? Uh, he had just written Out of the Silent Planet mm-hmm. and uh, it made a splash, but almost no one caught the point. Almost mm-hmm. no one saw the deeper meaning behind it. And Lewis uh, responds to a letter from Sister Penelope. She writes and says, Will there be a sequel? She had a few other questions, and he answered those, and he said, yes, I'm going to do a sequel. He said, but would you believe out of the 60-plus reviews that only two caught on that there was anything deeper behind it? For example, when I was talking about you know, a bent one, the bent one, that this had anything to do with anything in reality other than just an invention in my mind. mm -hmm. And, And then he makes this comment. He says, we might use this great ignorance for the evangelization of England. We yeah. can now smuggle theology into people's minds under cover of what he calls romance. And he just yep. meant fairy story.
0: Sure, exactly.
1: When I read that, I thought, I'm not just guessing that Lewis did this. He says that he did this intentionally. Exactly. So then I wanted to fill out that. So chapter one is just really me introducing readers to who was C.S. Lewis? What, yeah. uh, who, who was the man? What, what did he go through himself in his own journey to Christ? And how did imagination and story and myth play a role throughout the course of his life uh, as an author and as an apologist for the faith?
0: Yeah, that's that's a that's a, a wonderful chapter, too. I mean, I, I learned a lot. I've read a lot of books on C.S. Lewis, as I know you have. And I still learn something new every time. You know, as uh, I think Tolkien once said, we're all allegories. We're all particular embodiments in particular space and time. And so we're always... You know, learning something new about someone every time we, uh, we, we read about their lives. And of course, no one really gets tired, I think, of learning about Lewis or Tolkien. And speaking of, of kind of a comparison of the two, uh, and now that I've mentioned Tolkien, what's interesting to me is that Lewis was so forward about, for the most part, about saying that he was smuggling theology. And I think Tolkien really struggled with this. Clyde Kilby, I think, once said that uh, Tolkien was guilty of contra-insistency something like, you know, insistent contradiction. He was always kind of, uh, maybe ambivalence is the right word, and I explore it a little bit in my book, but uh, about the allegory and especially the intentionality issue. So I don't think, uh, there's a, there's one place in Tolkien's letters where he says, I have deliberately created a, a story out of certain religious ideas. The word deliberate seems to betray the intentionality or the lack thereof that he, that he claims in other letters and, and writings that he didn't have. Yeah. So I, I wish he had been more, yeah. Hey, we can do this. You know, we can, we can use this for the evangelization of England. And I love that yeah. that Lewis was just upfront about it. And I think that Tolkien maybe gave uh, Tolkien, uh, Tolkien gave Lewis a hard time about that sometimes with the Narnia books. Although I know that that's being revised nowadays, you know, Dr. Uh, Ordway just released a book where she's talking about, you know, maybe, maybe uh, among other things, maybe we've overstated the importance of Tolkien's disdain for the Narnia books. But anyway, I thought that was right. a, a good segue to also now into chapter two, uh, which you've written, C.S. Lewis's sacramental, love this word, view, sacramental view of reality. Yeah. Um, and after you're done walking us through it, I have a couple of things that I enjoyed I'll, I'll um, point out. Maybe we can talk a little bit about it.
1: Sure. Yeah. So in trying in asking, the, it seemed to me that if I was going to ask the question, what is it about the world that nature – Music, myths, these things can awaken this deep longing that both you and I, and so in Lewis, and I think Tolkien, and so many others have experienced. I needed to I needed to start with the world, this created world, and ask what what is it about creation uh, that would maybe help give us some kind of understanding of how this works. Mm-hmm. And and of course, I knew I then needed to go on and ask that question about the imagination. But I started with creation and this created world and the more i read lewis you know you you, you can't miss it that plato <laughs> heavily influenced his thoughts oh yeah you, you come to the end of his narnia stories you know and lord diggory makes the comment when they're trying you know uh spoiler alert for those yeah. who have not read the whole series maybe <laughs> turn the volume down now because i hate to exactly. give it away but you. <laughs> if you have read it um at the end they come into the really real Narnia mm-hmm. and they think, gosh, this looks an awful lot like old Narnia, but, but better. The yep. colors are more vibrant. Uh, everything was more wonderful. It was, it was more solid, more real. Mm-hmm. And Digory says, you know, don't you see this is, this is the real Narnia. And he mentioned something. He said, it's all in Plato. It's all yeah. in Plato. What did they teach that.
0: in these schools? Exactly. Love that line. Yeah.
1: And you know, Plato uh. had the idea. He, uh, brilliant insight um which i'm i i think i know where i have a hunch where that insight came from even though plato was a card carrying uh coming from the pagan world yeah but um i think that plato was trying to understand the two concepts how is it that our world has unity and diversity how do we make sense of the fact that things are they are what they are but the particulars are always changing, so for instance, you know if I were to look at my window right here, I can look across I have a there's a woods over there, there' are trees mm. If I look over there in three months from now, it'll all look different, but they're the same trees. i won't I won't conclude that some uh, sneaky person has come and uprooted the previous trees and planted new ones that look sort of the same height and a little different. Sure. Plato was asking the question, how do we account for the, the sameness and the change? There's something mm-hmm. that even though all the particulars, the bark will make could fall off, the leaves will change colors, the numbers of leaves could change, a branch or two can fall off, but we still know essentially it's a tree, and it's exactly. the same tree. And he had this notion of what he called the forms, uh, maybe mm-hmm. the idea to, to help us is just the concept of ideas mm-hmm. um, and that essences. That there was this world, if you like, of the forms of the essences, these eternal, unchanging ideas mm-hmm. that have always been there, and there, then there's the material world, that this created world down here, that's that's a copy of that higher pattern. And Lewis thought that was that was pretty close to the way that it really was. Yeah. And I think Augustine thought that too. Yep. Augustine helps us locate those ideas in the mind of God and so he gives us a better location than Plato could give us for them. up there there yeah (laughs) instead of just up there and we we don't know we have we don't know what we're really talking about but Augustine knew that if you were to have perfect eternal ideas where could those be contained except for in a perfect eternal mind that mind of course could only belong to God and so when God creates this world he he creates it out of his mind. He speaks the word we're told in the Bible, and he creates the world. Mm-hmm. Lewis uh, thought that, and so he thought that this world had something like the fingerprints of God all over it. Mm-hmm. He'll use all sorts of different metaphors. He'll say there are patches of God light that one. breaking yeah. through everywhere. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a good the- one. Think about going through the woods and you see like a beam of light coming through this beautiful ray of light. And Lewis thought this world down here, God has given us so many of those that if we pay attention, we can see them. Exactly. So what my idea of sacramental is, is just simply the notion of, of the, the world down here pointing up to the transcendent. But doing more than just pointing. A sign hmm. can point without participating in the thing to which it points. Right. I'm convinced that this world has some kind of participation Mm -hmm. That God is is more present than we probably realize, and that that there's some kind of participation of the transcendent down in the particulars.
0: Yes, it's interesting. I wanted, if we could pause there for a second, because in in my book, I I argue that parables actually do that, that they are a type of story that not only point to, but are the thing they're pointing to. And uh, I'm reminded of um, Edward Pusey, who wrote about the sacramental unity or union of type and archetype. And I think that's what you're also alluding to there. And you mentioned, uh, was it, um, who was it, Bavar, who was uh, influential, was was that the scholar's name?
1: Edwin Bevin, was it?
0: Bevin, I'm sorry, Bevin, yes. I wasn't familiar with him. Uh, That was influential on Lewis who seemed to also talk about that. And and that's right. I think that a story that can capture that, what you've just described about reality, um, is a perfect vehicle for trying to say that about reality. And so I argue that that's what a parable does. And I think you mentioned supposal a few times, uh, which I I mentioned only briefly in my book, but I I kind of, have always understood Lewis's take on supposal to really mean what a parable is. So I kind of see that these are stories through which we can see these patches of God light and, and understand that they're not just pointing to the world above the transcendent, but somehow participating in it. That is, you know, the already and not yet that we're, uh, that we Christians believe so I think it has some eschatological significance what you've said to you and, and it's just it's beautiful and I love that image of patches of god light that's really great um, I've got more more things I want to say but I'm going to let you continue yeah um, go ahead please
1: so I think um, the, the other image that helps me get uh, across what I'm trying to say in, in this chapter about this sacramental view of creation what kind of world is it um, is the idea of shadows and solids Mm-hmm. So when you mm-hmm. see a shadow, it, it, a shadow is only there because there's something more physical, there's something more real, exactly. and we, we, we kind of get that. There, there's some sense in which we, you, can, you can put your hands on and grab and touch the object. A shadow, you can never do that with, unless you're Peter Pan, exactly. <laughs> you can grab say, it yeah. and uh, sew it to your foot, but, uh, exactly. but this shadows and solids phenomenon – Um, The idea is that the sun is shining, and it hits the real object, and behind that real object is cast the shadow, and if all you saw was the shadow, you would have to – you would think to yourself, what's making that shadow there? And you'd look, and then you'd see the real object, Mm -hmm. and I think the world – and that helps us in some sense understand the way that the world gives us a clue that there are greater – Realities, thicker, more real realities mm-hmm. than what this uh, world of our daily experience often gives us if we just come at it via the five senses. Absolutely. When I say more real, to, to make that a little helpful, that, that sounds really abstract. Mm-hmm. What I mean is when we talk about universals, and I, I talk about truth, goodness, and beauty in this chapter mm-hmm. truth, goodness, and beauty, those are uh, unchanging, eternal. Ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, The particulars in the world of our experience will always change. uh, That you know, um, I'm this tall today. I, you know, if I live to be seventy, I'll probably be an inch shorter or two. You know, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll still be fundamentally me, though. Sure. And likewise, when you think about the concepts that I talk about—truth, goodness, and beauty—I'm what I'm saying is. Truth is an objective concept. It, it is something objective and fixed and unchanging, yes but it's also sacramental in mm-hmm. that Lewis understood remember he go in his own journey, he goes through this period of, of where he, he embraces philosophical idealism mm-hmm which is the the view that the material world is is not what you think it's really mm-hmm. all ideas fundamentally mm-hmm. that sounds kind of hocus pocusy a little bit yeah but yeah. what he was after was this idea that there is a there is reason there's logos there's objective rationality mm-hmm. that that puts this whole world together and He was on to something. He realized in time that the only way that would make sense is if there was a higher reason, a higher source of Mm -hmm. rationality that had given the rationality that we can see down here, its form and its structure and its coherence, that, Mm -hmm. of course, would be the mind of God. Right. So in that way, every true statement, every truth that you might find down here in some way has a connection to the true truth, the, the mind of God.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's a wonderful way of explaining it. I mean, but we all, I think, also have an intuition that that this is not all there is. I mean, just from the statement I hear from a lot of my students, you know, well, we, we live in a box, you know, this is, this is all what you see is what you get. And I've always pointed out, I mean, how would you know you're in a box unless you know you're not? And so yeah. we have these basic intuitions that uh, and, and, you know, the, the argument from longing and joy that Lewis gives is itself uh, an argument that we, uh, we know we sense that there's a, a, a more real out there, that there's a reality with a capital R. And I'm thinking of uh, the, the sharp blades of grass from the great divorce and yes. uh, heaven, heaven is reality itself. Meaning, of course, the implication is that this isn't, but it's not unreal, it's just less real, but it's still participating in that uh, reality that is yet to come. And so I think it's important that we don't drive a wedge. Maybe in some places of Plato's dialogues, he does where, no, right. no, you know, reality with a capital R is here and it's up there and lowercase r is here and we're getting away from this one to go there. I, I think that's not what you're arguing and I don't think that's what Lewis right. argues either. You even have, um, remind me if it's in this chapter or another one, but you have a great kind of coda to one of the end of your chapters about Lewis and Plato, which is really helpful for for distinguishing with these nuances because yeah. you're not arguing You know, disembodied kind of Platonism, but more of a nuanced understanding that Lewis had.
1: Right. So if that's the real difference, I think where there are a couple of them, but one of the more significant differences. But if you're trying to look at like a where I do the comparison between Plato and Lewis, right. The the view was something like for Plato that um, this material world down here was a was an imperfect copy of a perfect, and the the one he calls the demiurge or this Mm. this godlike creature person, mm-hmm. created, uh, or I should say technically fashioned for Plato, right. the material world down here, and that it was less than good. It mm-hmm. was less than good for Plato. Um, now, that's very different from what we read in Genesis. Absolutely. We read in Genesis seven times that it was good after God mm-hmm. creates the material world out of out of the w- spoken word, and the seventh time he says it was very good. Exactly. And you were talking about the eschatological implications, the implications of what you and I are, are on to … for what's going to happen ultimately when Christ returns and culminates the new heavens and the new earth. Mm-hmm. Does this give us anything to say about that? I think it absolutely does because absolutely. the material is good uh, in the Christian view of things. For, for Plato, you, the, the, your hope was that you could escape this body prison. That's the right. body is almost likened to a kind of a prison. Mm-hmm. The soul is, is the real you, and you need to get get the shell off and, exactly. and escape and get out. For Christianity, yikes! Uh, yeah. <laughs> you have the you have the physical resurrection, so yeah. very different. It's very different, and yeah. I think what Lewis helps us see is that this physical world is good. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing gone bad for sure, absolutely. But it's not that essentially. It's still yeah. as, in essence, it is a good world that accidentally. I'm speaking philosophically. Uh, sure. I don't mean that Adam stubbed his toe. Uh, accidentally, it's gone wrong.
0: Uh yeah, that's good. Um, no, I, I knew exactly what you meant. I, I agree. Uh I think that's that's solid theology. Um, I wanna I wanna move into chapter three because I want to make sure we have enough time, uh, because you've got some really great material uh in, in these last three chapters. Uh really a book that I encourage everyone to read slowly and prayerfully because uh there's a lot to to take in. Like in like on my own, and I know people have said that all the time to me, it's it's a dense book, but it's good. I'm like, well, get get a pen and paper and take your time.
1: Yeah. Uh, what's
0: what's the hurry? And, and all good books, I think, are, are like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say uh, kindly to, to your readers several times, you know, this is a complicated argument, but we're going to walk through it. And then you, you really do a great job with your summaries. And I think that's particularly uh, true of chapter three, which has a lot of uh, potentially uh, complex material, especially on the imagination. So uh, I'll, I'm going to cut myself off on chapter two because there are other things I want to say, maybe we'll have you on again in the future. Uh, I, I don't always want to pretend that we just do this, a one and done thing. So, sure. uh, you know, maybe in the future we can come back and focus on some more, um, elements from these chapters. Cause there's a lot of great stuff. So let's talk about chapter three. Now, uh, CS Lewis's romantic view of the human imagination. I was just asking a friend the other day and, um, You know, it said what what it it was about romanticism or the the idea of the romantic in Lewis's writings and where I could find more information about this. And there's one line in your book in chapter three here where you explain the romantic in the connection to joy and longing. Um, And that's one thing you talk about, but you also talk about the human imagination. So tell us some more about chapter three. Sure. And uh, go ahead.
1: So on chapter three, yeah, I'm trying to now understand what Lewis believed about the human imagination Mm -hmm. that would work with this creation. And, but now we're in not, I'm, I'm thinking a little, over to this side of things on the imaginary things and not just the things we can touch with our hands. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about the romantic imagination, uh, what I'm not talking about is what we think about. We just had Valentine's Day. I'm not thinking Mm -hmm. about uh, candy hearts and flowers and all that. That's the way we use the word a lot. But Lewis tells us if you read... the, uh, the Pilgrim's Regress, the, the, the third edition, he has an afterword there where he goes through about eight ways of which romantic has been used in literature, and he says, but here's what I mean by it, and he says, I had the idea of th- th- this, rom- this uh, inconsolable longing that Myths, imaginary things like myths and stories, fairy tales can conjure up, can can evoke, can stir up, awaken inside of us. So that's what I meant by romantic, that right. the imagination is something that's given to us a faculty, if you like, by God through which he is able to stir up those things. Yes, yes. You even find – you know what's fascinating? I didn't mention this in the book, but you even find a comment by Friedrich Nietzsche uh towards the end of his life i think it was too where he mentions uh, this metaphysical longing i think is the phrase that he uses hmm. and he, and he mentions how this this it leads him to want to go back to 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 maybe even religion and really? nietzsche, so nietzsche uh, he even mentions this this concept and i think what wow. he's getting at is that idea of longing sure so that's what i'm trying to uh, understand in the third chapter uh, how is it that the imagination then does that? What is it? What is it doing? How is it working with this sacramental world that we live in to do that? Mm-hmm. So with that, I look into a couple of books. Lewis says somewhere that if anyone wants to think clearly about these matters, he needs to go and immediately read two books, and he mentions Owen Barfield's uh, Symbolism, a uh, uh, poetic diction, mm-hmm. and Edwin Bevin's, uh, Symbolism and Belief. Mm-hmm. And I racked my brain, Michael. I thought, has anyone? done that that i've uh, in a lewis book i had not found one so i thought i want to go look into that i just plunged into those and i looked at what they what they had to say Mm. and one other quick note lewis mentions in surprised by joy he's when he's talking about barfield's book poetic diction he says to us that he says i believed those things that barfield writes in his book even before he he wrote the book Mm. i knew that this would would help me Yeah. yeah reading those books what it does what it does is it shows you that Lewis understood language and ideas and words to be able to pull in from reality. He, he, he thinks that when we use our imaginations, the, the tools that we have to work with, the, the, the material that we have to work with, if you're a potter, the clay that you have to fashion, if you're mm-hmm. a painter, the paint that's on your palette, that is all given to us from the real world. Right. from reality yep. and then what we do in our imagination we can take those real things and reach he calls it reshuffling the universals yeah i love that right you can yeah. reshuffle if you think about a minotaur you take uh, a bull and a, you take bullness and manness and you can put them together <laughs> exactly. in a way that's not true to the way that the real world is but there's some reality that's coming through because you're drawing from the real world beautiful lewis yeah. thought that um the imagination we were able to do that, that you could take the essence of a thing, dress it up in mythological clothing, Mm -hmm. put it in a totally different context, but still the essential truth of it could come through. Right. He does it for us with Aslan, right?
0: Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, just to pause here, you say, and and you make a really important distinction. I've seen other authors who who have written about the imagination. We had Dr. Paul Gould on the show uh, last week, uh where he made the same point it's the imagination's job is not just to picture things it, yeah. and it's not just uh the image it's what the image means yeah meaning is the antecedent of truth and the you know the organ of meaning he says and you make a a really fine point of explaining that very well in this chapter and that that is really important because it's it's really not so much about the image but what the image means and how you're dressing it up uh yeah uh, you can make that same point. Um, you, you have this letter that you quote about uh, Lawrence, the boy and his mom writing Lewis. I loved it. Uh, I think I had encountered it some years ago. I vaguely was reminded of it, but maybe it was new. And he was worried. The mom was worried about you know the son loving Aslan too much, and you know that this was some sort of sinful thing. And Lewis basically writes and says, "No, you know, in loving Aslan, you're loving Jesus because it's not you're not loving the image. You're loving what the image means."
1: Yes. And
0: that was really, that really cinched it for me. That was great. It was really great.
1: That Yeah, that concept is so huge, because I mm-hmm. think if you ask most people, what does the imagination do? Well, the word image is, is in the root of imagination. They think that it, it, it churns up images for us, and yeah. it, it can do that. Mm-hmm. And Lewis, this is pretty telling. Lewis admits that in terms of the, the imagination doing that, his was pretty overactive. He said, "I've got. He could picture things vividly, mm-hmm. um, really vividly, and he thought that was a problem for his imagination. He said because if I'm not careful, the image becomes dominant, and the mm-hmm. thing for which it stands, it what it, it is is sort of maybe even cloaked by the the potency of the image. Wow. And yet, yeah, he will tell us. He will tell us. No. He said once the image has served its purpose and gotten you to the meaning of the thing." You can slug that off. What what you're right. after is is really the meaning of the thing, and that that explains to us, I think, how you can have the same concept, uh, the same essence of a thing, dressed up differently. And authors can do this in all sorts of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, yeah. I think that's fascinating. That, that's that's a huge you, distinction to make. Yeah,
0: and I think that Tolkien, you know, really uh, might have struggled to explain this, but he seems to have thought there was some way of avoiding allegory that we, we can't really, we, we can avoid the, the image pointing away from itself, but you really can't ultimately. Yeah. And no matter how hard I think he tried, the image of the return of the king is a, a potent, meaningful image that that means Jesus. And and it doesn't, I mean, I think, yes, there's multivalence that can still be there. It, it doesn't just point, it participates. So you still have yes. to come back to the image and, and enjoy that, but one does have to be also careful. And I'm reminded of the screw tape yes. letters about this too, with obsessing over it or, or, or missing out on that larger meaning. And so it's a very fine thing. Um, you know, there's a there's a delicate dance between the author, the intention of the author, the uh, the novel or the, the writing itself, and the audience. And you really have to you know just tread carefully with this. But um, yeah. that was. Insightful what you shared about Lewis with his overactive imagination, and I can see where that can be used for you know for evil or or, or for ill uh, as well as for good. And the imagination can cut both ways if we're not careful.
1: It um, yo my goodness yeah in yeah. the world that we're living in today certainly it it yeah exactly it's mm-hmm. um it, it can be great gr- for great good or for great evil. The other mm-hmm. concept that's probably important to mention here, just as we Please. close out this chapter, maybe is the concept yeah. of the true myth. Yes. Um, I'm sorry. The true metaphor. Barfield. Um, mm-hmm. Barfield talks about the true metaphor. Yes. So if you if you had had Lewis instead of Aslan, if he had made the Christ character a turtle, <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. laugh at that because yeah. we know that a turtle doesn't that the the turtleness doesn't quite capture what we're after when we're trying mm-hmm. to to com- convey. The character of the king of kings the king mm-hmm. of the the real king of the universe exactly but a lion with the, its regal associations and power and all that comes with him he's lewis tells us in one place where, where the children are talking to the beavers and they're asking about aslan you know the well-known line well is he safe Say, so, mm-hmm. you know, goodness no he's not safe but he's good when I was a child, and I remember hearing that read to me, the, the idea that this lion, Aslan, was not safe, but he was good, I was, I was drawn to him all the more. Mm. And with Christ, he is absolutely not safe. If somebody wants a safe path to tread, I would recommend many others, but not not Christ's. No. Yeah. But I agreed. he is good. Yes. He is he is good. Amen and Lewis, God. and I think a lion gets that across. So oh, yeah, the true metaphor, these guys, both Barfield and Bevan, they thought that the associations that we that we we make between the, the symbol and the thing it points to are not just accidents. They think that this is a real structure that's that's in the world, almost something like mathematics. We didn't yeah. create it, we discovered it.
0: Sure. Yeah. And I think this uh, th- this is really uh, well put out by, by Barfield in poetic diction. And, and what he's, I think, getting at is uh, the typological significance of this too, where you know, the type is pointing to and participating in the the archetype, Jesus, that brings all things together. So I, it is sort of built into the fabric of reality. We're meant to, and I know Lewis calls them ectypes, I think, right? Uh, yes. But, but I think that's basically the same same point. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's something we're meant to discover like a natural law almost and, and, uh, and have it, uh, point, uh, follow us where it's pointing to and to whom it's pointing. So, right. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. And I, I want to make sure, um, I hope you don't mind where we might approach and go over a little bit over an hour. I hope that's okay with you. Sure. Um, but I really think it's important. We finish out, uh, and talk about chapters four and five. So chapter four, I know there's a lot, but maybe just pick, uh, what you're, you're really sort of drawn to. Share with us C.S. Lewis's use of fiction as pre-evangelism uh, through the Space Trilogy, which I'm not very familiar with, and the Chronicles of Narnia.
1: Sure. Yeah. So the, the you know the book we're we're dealing with what I call a post-Christian world. Mm. Um, the idea that uh, in a pre-Christian world, even for the pagans, people pretty well believed in spiritual reality, and Lewis he's got this great. Um, uh, article that was recently published called "A Christmas Sermon for Pagans," and in that he talks about it was published. Uh, Michael, it was published by the uh, the journal that uh, the Marianne Wade Center puts out ah, okay. a few years ago, "A Christmas Sermon for Pagans," and he mentions he says, "But there are no pagans around anymore." He <laughs> said the pagan was uh, the pre-Christian. He mm. said, "But we're living in a post-Christian world to where we don't, on the whole, people." Don't believe in spiritual reality they don't believe in a real sense of moral guilt before the gods Mm. they don't have a sense that the world is wonderful and enchanted we've lost all that Mm -hmm. so how do we make a start with people when they not only have disbelieved that but there's such hostility towards christianity many times when you try to even get the conversation going absolutely so as he's using his fiction what what i pointed out in chapter four was to try to show how lewis does this how does he actually put the rubber to the road and through the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, just to take a couple of examples, there's this, there's this one scene when I read it to my son. I can remember he was going to bed one night, and I was reading from Prince Caspian, mm. and it's the scene where uh, Cornelius, uh, the, the the new teacher who's been brought in to mm. Caspian, there he's uh, who's under the you know tyrannical reign the land is of King Miraz, who's tried to rid the world of all the talking beasts and. He, mm-hmm. he's, he's the naturalist, you know and he right. tries to tell people all the old stories you've heard are bunk. they're not true. It's nighttime. Cornelius takes Caspian up on top of the tower. the stars mm-hmm. are out. It's an enchanted atmosphere. Lewis gives you that atmosphere on purpose. Oh yeah, oh, and, yeah. and it's it's in the air that you're breathing there. Mm. And Cornelius starts to tell him he says Caspian the things that you've read about the talking animals, it's all true. It's all true. And he reveals that he's actually half dwarf, half man himself. Oh,
0: yeah, that's right. Yeah. When
1: I read that, that part of that story, the sense of wonder that Lewis was able to capture and, and give to us, given that we live in this world that's just been you know, so overtaken by naturalism and, mm. and technology and, and so void of wonder and, and a real stirring of the imagination, mm. uh, Lewis helps open the door back up for that. Certainly. And there was something there. I, I watched how it affected my son and it was powerful.
0: It is. That's a great example, too. And one I don't hear. Uh, I, I had to think about it, but that, that's toward the beginning of the book, too. And, and really, yeah. really great, because it, it reminds us what Dr. Charlie Starr has talked about, you know, that man is not a myth. And this is a very sad fact. Uh, and so, you know, with the, the, the teacher kind of revealing himself as half dwarf, it, it kind of says, hey, you know, myth is still with us. The world is enchanted, and what you've read is true. And it it then works on us outside the story to help us look at the same. We're, we're standing kind of in Caspian's place, aren't we? We're looking now at yes. the world and seeing that. So that that's a really great example. I think more people should be reaching for that one.
1: Yeah, yeah it it, it has it has the it does that so powerfully. Uh, mm. Probably the other example I'll mention, um, please, is in um, the horse and his boy. Mm. Uh, one of my favorites the The rider is on his horse there, and he's going across. That I think it's 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 described like a desert. He's just out there in the wilderness going, and it's dark, and uh, he, he hears f- footsteps by him, and and lots of footsteps, and uh, he thinks that he's surrounded by these lions, and a voice begins to speak to him, and it's and he describes it as something like the deepest most terrifying, yet most beautiful experience I'd ever had. He gets that idea again. He's not safe, but he's good. Exactly. He pulls that together. And as it's Aslan, and he begins to talk to him, uh, to Shasta, and he tells him of these things that he'd experienced. And the idea that Lewis is giving you there, yeah, Shasta is going, well, well, what was happening here and hmm. there and that? And, and Aslan begins to tell him, basically, I was leading you all along the way. All those things that you thought were coincidence and happenstance, hmm. I did that. That was me. And he Lewis gets across this idea of God's providence and his mm-hmm. guidance and his intervention in our lives in times that we might not recognize. And and again, wow. he does it in such a, a powerful way, but he's he's not giving you theology, he's not giving you propositional statements about theology. So, he's Lazarus, just weaving it into yeah.
0: the myth. Yes, yes. Uh, that is a that is a powerful example. Yeah, the um the the counter you're speaking about makes me think also of the Moses story and the burning bush a little bit. And I think um, some of the wording might be evocative of that scene from Exodus three uh, if I remember correctly, but yeah, the, the hot breath of Aslan on his face and oh, it's, yes. it's yeah. powerful. Yeah. I, I love the, I think that's a, a one that some people have a hard time getting into, but the horse and his boy is a, mm. is a, is a, become a favorite of mine. So yeah. and, uh, just finished reading it to, to our son Lucas. In fact, we haven't started Prince Caspian yet. Um, I forget which order we're reading you know, there's the different reading orders.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think
0: we started, we started with the magician's nephew. I might upset some people uh, by saying (laughs) that, but (laughs) anyway, um, yeah, that's, that's just, uh, good stuff. Um, so can you, can you use one from the space trilogy just because I don't know a lot of people are, Uh, familiar with that
1: the space trilogy yeah and i I think i saw diane glier has a book coming out on this that i am extremely excited to get my hands on when it comes out something of uh the 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 compass i can't remember the title but it's it's a book that's going to go through the space trilogy oh wow! anyway uh so maybe the one that that um let me see yeah let me do the one so in Paralandra (laughs) Mm -hmm. the second book Ransom is going. It's towards the end of the story there, and he's going up up the mountain, and he's going to meet uh, Malachandra, the, o, the o, o, what the book uh, Lewis calls the Oyarsa. The Oyarsa. Mm-hmm. These are these angelic-like beings, these powerful beings that inhabit these the, the planets and the heavens, and the Malachandra uh, and uh, Paralandra, uh, uh are there. The two mm-hmm. gods of these of these planets, these angelic gods of these planets. When Ransom is going up the mountain, the way he describes that scene, again, if if somebody wants to get a sense of what enchantment feels like Mm. in a fiction story, that scene is just thick. And he has this line where he said, Ransom says to himself, this is both the most holy and the most unholy thing I have ever done in my life. Wow. And I think, again, the point comes across, the way Lewis has put that. You know what he's after you know what he's trying to say that sure. I'm in the presence of such powerful and good beings I feel yeah. so unworthy mm-hmm. and yet this is the very thing I've been brought here to do I'm doing my duty mm-hmm. in that sense it's a holy thing but in the sense of realizing what a wretch I am yeah. and in the presence of these powerful good beings it's it's unholy mm-hmm uh, I, I – th- th- you oh, have a similar wow. scene. Uh, let me tie another one in uh, at, at the um, – again, spoiler. Hmm. So if you've not read the, all these books, the last book, That Hideous Strength, mm-hmm. Ransom and his, you know, his, his, his party of, of the good guys, they're there in his house, and these gods begin to come down and, and visit them in the house. And you have uh, Mercury and Saturn, and then in the end, my favorite, of course, is Jove, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Jupiter, who's mm-hmm. going to come at the end. And what Lewis does when each of those gods comes, he gives you all of the connotations, all of the associations that you would rightly attach to those gods when they come, mm-hmm. so that the whole atmosphere is thick with their essence. Yeah. So when Jove comes, there's celebration, there's joviality. Mm-hmm. People feel bold all of a sudden. They feel courageous. There's a kingliness in the mm-hmm. air. And that, again, I think helps us to understand. Lewis understood what a good metaphor was. Mm-hmm. He understood, because he was a poet too, sure. he understood how poetic language not only gives you uh, beauty, but it brings connotations. Yes. The words, all the... The associations that a word can convey to us—that's mm-hmm. uh, thick there at the end of the story when these gods come down. And again, the the, the sense that you get is of enchantment.
0: I've got to read these books.
1: Oh, it's I've, beautiful. I've,
0: yeah, you've you've sold me. I mean, it's not that I I purposely avoided them. I just it wasn't wasn't something that I thought I would I would be attracted to. But now I've got to.
1: I um, did avoid them, man. I, I I'm you? not I'm not a science fiction guy. I th- yeah, I, I think they it. were. They were billed wrongly. I thought I was reading something like Star Trek from Lewis. Okay, that's what I. I that's thought, what I. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to read that. It's no. it's more spiritual than sci-fi, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm gonna do it. Yeah. You know the thing is I have read quotes uh, from the book and I'm like oh that sounds interesting but yeah maybe that was my my uh, my subconscious uh, reluctance you know that I thought it was gonna be some Star Trekky type thing but. Yeah. Yeah, Which I, which I was never into, but that sounds great. And um, good, good. You know, (laughs) you mentioned, you mentioned metaphor too. I think um, metaphor being very suggestive way of speaking about one thing in terms of another, right? That it's, it's not this for that, but it's suggestive. You mentioned connotations and I write about this in my book too, um, that that's how metaphor works. And so again, he's not using deliberate i would say clear allegorical language right he's painting it suggestively and that makes you start thinking is it this is it that is it that is it that it's all of them it's none of them it's all of them and you you keep going back and forth and it really keeps you um yeah enchanted it it, you can't quite put your finger on it and and it's that feeling that that i think people um are missing today yeah and um and So to tie everything up now with chapter five, and I'm, this is kind of a chapter four, five question, I want you to tell us a little bit about chapter five because this is uh, towards a Louisian pre-evangelistic approach today through the medium of imaginative fiction. It's a great uh, chapter title and uh, I think, as I understand, pre-evangelism for you is really kind of like apologetics in that it's preparing the ground uh, to be fertile and uh, you know, ready for receiving the gospel. I think the only thing, and I don't know that we disagree, but in my book, I kind of say that these imaginative stories can also be not only simultaneously um, uh, preparations of the gospel, but glimpses of the gospel at the same time that they participate in that, and we can get a experience with the Son of God, especially if the stories are told from the Christian point of view, as we know these are. Uh, So I, I I think there's a lot of overlap there, but I would say, you know, nothing replaces the gospel, but I think that we're still getting the gospel through these stories. Um, But I think I see your point is that, you know, you you still, you you hold to the belief that Lewis and Tolkien were pointing ultimately that, you know, the Bible is really, we need to hear the explicit gospel. Yeah. So um, I guess now talk to us about chapter five. Tell us what you mean by, uh, from your words about pre-evangelism and what we can do with these stories today.
1: Yeah, so uh, we might not be in, in too much disagreement there, Michael, with what okay. you're describing. Uh, I think the the challenge for us is that you know we're living in a world to where there's such an illiteracy in the public mind about christianity sure so we may have to connect more dots today than you had to connect in the past you know yeah. um yeah. i think lewis is more explicit we'd probably agree than tolkien in doing mm. that sure and so he, he may kind of take you a little further down the road but i think today we really have to connect the dots for people so they know what these things are ultimately mm. Um, but they, they, I, th- I think I agree. There is some kind of participation in these things, like mm. the letter to Lawrence. You know, mm-hmm. the boy, he, mm-hmm. he's loving Christ even in loving Aslan. Yes, yes. So in this, yeah, in this final chapter, I'm, I am pleading almost, man, with, with Christians out there who have the gifts to write stories. Yes. You could do it in a number of mediums. I just, I just pick story. I was, I was narrowing it. You could do it with music. You could do it mm-hmm. with paintings. You could yep. do it with even architecture to some degree, uh, to a great degree maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I talk about stories, and I'm, I'm really pleading with Christians to think about how to do what Tolkien and Lewis did. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me just say a word to those who, for those of us who might, we might not be able to do that. What we can do is go back and, and read those stories that have been done for us and enjoy them and read them to our children and read them to our, our grandparents with their grandchildren and to help recapture that sense of wonder that, yes. that we need. Yes. And others, I'm, I'm just pleading for people to, to think about using their gifts to write these things. Oh, yeah. And in doing that, I thought about the qualities that are, I, I asked myself, what qualities are there in a story that pre-evangelizes, that introduces readers to Christian ideas under cover of myth to where, where the defenses aren't fully up mm-hmm. and to where you could sneak along things uh, into people to where then in time they might give the actual gospel a fair hearing. Sure. And just to mention a few, I thought about things like the sense of, of what Lewis calls the numinous, mm. the uncanny. Mm-hmm. which which is what you get when Ransom comes to the top of the mountain and he's in the presence mm-hmm. of these incredible beings mm-hmm. you know uh, that sense of that we might be entertaining angels unaware as the bible says yes there's a, we are not alone in this world in the sense mm-hmm. that all that that is really here is what my eyes perceive mm-hmm. it's reality's far thicker and deeper than that and we're trying to help recapture that absolutely and then the idea of what uh, you'll know this one even better than I would—Tolkien's uh, concept of the eucatastrophe, mm-hmm. the good catastrophe, the sudden turn at the yeah. end that you find in so many fairy stories. Uh, yeah. Cinderella, yeah. you know, the the clock strikes and she's running home and she leaves the slipper and. Things just seem to unravel there, but that's really a, a grace at the end because it's that slipper that was left behind that's then brought and placed on her foot, and you get that's the right. happy ending. That's right. In Lord of the Rings, it's it's uh, Gollum mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, Gandalf says early on in the story, we don't know what purpose Gollum may serve, but he may serve some purpose for good in the end. That's right. He absolutely does. He's the one that is the the one who accidentally ends up destroying the ring. You know? I
0: know. Yeah. Uh, what a, what a, what an element to have in the story. Yeah. The catastrophe is something we'll um maybe have to explore more when you come on the mm-hmm. show next time. Yeah. I'd like to hear more of your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. So uh, I think as, as, as we introduce people to those things, I'll give you just a quick here story of how this worked out in real life. Yeah. And then hand it back over. So I was at dinner with uh, uh, some friends uh, a while back. This was right before COVID hit mm. a group of people at a, at a long dinner table in a restaurant. And I was sitting across from a girl who she had dabbled in uh, the occult. Mm. She was not a Christian, and she got to talking. Uh, we got to talking about different things, and she was asking me what I was finishing up my degree on. I was right in the middle of writing all this mm-hmm. and uh, of writing the book, and uh, I talked to her about Lewis and, and this and that, and, and she said, oh, I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I said, really? You did? I said, hey, could you tell me how would you describe Aslan to somebody who'd never read the book before? Mm. And here's this, this non believing girl who had dabbled in the occult. She said, Oh, he was wonderful. He was just wonderful. And I said, How would you describe him, though, a little more than that? And she said, Well, he was kind of this godlike figure, this all encompassing godlike figure. Mm. She's getting it right. She's hitting the bullseye. Sure. And I asked her, I said, What do you think about what he did for Edmund? Do you remember that? Mm. She said, That was the most loving thing. You know, he gave his life up for Edmund. And I asked her, I said, does that remind you of anything that happened in real history? <laughs> and she didn't get it, Michael. She, she missed it. Really? Wow. And when I connected the dots to her, I wish you could have seen her face. Yeah. It's the only time I've seen the light bulb come on for somebody who'd read that book and didn't know what they, what they really got. And then they, wow. and then they got it. She sat back in her chair and she said, I have never noticed that before. Wow. And it, it you saw the light bulb go on and I've I've yeah. been interacting with this person off and on since then. I've sent her a book on Lewis and Oh, that's great. You know, just praying for her. But yeah. it the pre evangelism was, was doing its work on her during that Certainly. conversation.
0: Oh, that's a powerful, powerful example. Very yeah. And you know, it, it's funny we, we, we often hear nowadays about the opposite though, which is so sad. So glad you've had that experience where, oh, I've heard this Aslan is Jesus and you know, that's why I don't want to read it. And so there's that disenchantment, which is, it's so sad because the story really does work on you in such a suggestive, subtle way. And I think that of the seven books, perhaps the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe has some of the more explicitly allegorical elements, but but not, not really the rest of the books. I really think that people need to give them a chance. And so I'm so pleased to hear you had this experience uh, I've had a handful but no, nothing like that I've never seen it you know come on you know for me I, I've encountered with more people who, who I've just described you know oh I know Tolkien was a Christian tell me something I don't know oh I know Lewis wrote this for this reason and it's it's just bad um, yeah. and so we have to talk you know about the role of the heart in accepting the gospel and some people have those emotional barriers to it uh, yeah. but I'm, I'm glad you had that experience that is very powerful and if we can continue to um, help people see these books that we've written and, and others like them and to get the word out more about this so people are aware of, of how this can affect us. I think it will really help change some so hopefully change some minds and hearts. Uh, yes, that's what I'm praying for at least. So yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I know um, there, like I mentioned, you catastrophe, there are so many other things I want to ask you, and you have some other really great uh, features. Of stories, you mentioned the numinous. You, you also kind of hinted something like uh, smuggling in Christian theology. But I, I I kind of like well, this is what this is what I'm after too. Is that the story has to be suggestive, in uh, Barfield's kind of metaphorical way that it is, it's tantalizing enough that it's pointing to this thing, uh, to this person, Jesus, but but not quite doing it all the way. And I think that is probably one of the most important features that those stories have to have. And so if you're not writing a, a story like Lewis or Tolkien, uh, folks, um, use the stories. And, and I don't mean crudely in the sense, mind them, uh, which I don't think you've done at all, but you know, mind them for examples for apologetics, but use them in the sense that immerse yourself in them, learn them by heart and be able to tell and retell those stories to other people and then let them have some space to immerse themselves in the stories. And that's what I think we need to do. Yeah. Um, and I was asked a question once about, oh well, how can we mine, you know, the Lord of the Rings for apologetic material? And I go, I wouldn't suggest that we approach it that way right. at all. Um, I mean, you're ultimately going to get some material, sure. I could point to a, a great scene in the Two Towers, and I did, but but that's not really how we should do it. Yeah, uh, and that's a violation of I think what what you're trying to say, Lewis and, and Tolkien were trying to do is yes. it's got to be suggestive, and you have to. Narrative gives people a chance to consider the message that they're hearing, so you can't hover over them and say, "Okay, do you do you, do you accept Jesus? Uh, do you get it?" Yeah, that's not really the way.
1: Yeah, I think I th- if we were talking about a piece of music, it'd be the difference between encouraging someone to listen to a piece of music and enjoy it exactly. versus are analyzing it on the back end and talking right. about the meter and the timing and whatnot. That might that might have some use. Sure, but we're, we're yeah. To your point, we're asking people enjoy the stories yes immerse yourself in them they the magic is there it'll yeah. it'll, it'll have yeah. its effect
0: exactly yeah and i want to remind our listeners here too we've talked about this that uh, the, you know the old english word for spell which we think of magic spell m- meant story or enchantment so you know this is really uh, quite a tongue-in-cheek thing and i think it's great to consider the uh, the uh, suggestive um uh, you know uh, meanings that this has so anyway i'm going to end it on that note I want to keep talking with you, and I know uh, we, we've we've pushed you over an hour. Thank you so much for your time uh, and for writing this book. It's been a blessing to me already, and I hope it will bless uh, our listeners. So I can't thank you enough.
1: Well, Michael, thank you, and thanks for what you're doing with this podcast and your book as well, man. I'm, I'm so grateful to meet another like-minded person who's after the same thing.
0: Me as well. It's good. Good to know you. See you next time. Thank you, All right. everybody.
1: Thanks, Michael.